This is Navigating the Inevitable. I'm Elizabeth Kama. The first day I got to Germany, I stumbled onto a memorial. Literally. I was living in the Bavarian quarter of Berlin, a historically Jewish district. And in front of almost every apartment building on my street, there were these brass bricks marking where Jewish residents used to live before they fled or were murdered in the Holocaust. I'm stopping here because I just ran into stumbling stones. Um, this is just across the street from where I'm staying. Paul Goldschmidt. Deported. 14. Memorials are everywhere in Germany. The stumbling stones weren't even the only memorials scattered throughout my neighborhood. I also had these signs. So I found the first one. It says Auswanderungs verboten for Jesus. It said all the rules that were placed on Jewish citizens in the lead up to the Holocaust. Sometimes I feel like there are as many memorials in Germany as there are complications with memorialization. And there are a lot of complications. Countries just don't build their memorial cultures and legacies on the memory of you know, national crimes. That's James E. Young. I'm James Young. I'm now a so-called Distinguished University Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and founding director of the Institute for Holocaust, Genocide, and Memory Studies. But I retired in 2016 and spent my time now you know, writing, still juring various competitions and doing a lot of talking. He does all that writing and jurying and talking because he is one of the foremost experts on memorial culture in the world, particularly in Germany, where he was the only Jewish member of the board that selected the design for the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, which is better known as the Holocaust Memorial. Since then, he's also juried various other memorial competitions, including the competition for the 9-11 Memorial. Suffice to say, he knows a lot about memorials. I see memorials construed pretty broadly, and then I see subsets of memorials. Memorials can be museums, they can be days of remembrance, they can be objects, they can be a candle, and a monument would be the concrete formalization in the landscape. Historically, memorials have been monuments, statues to heroes or individual victims that passed along a narrative about the world. Memorials, like other art, are always located in a particular time and place. In the particular time and place of a post-World War II Germany, artists rejected the traditional monument type of memorial. This generation of artists really found the traditional conventional monument kind of repugnant, very authoritarian, even fascist, gigantic forms telling people what to think, dictating the same memory, fixing it in time and kind of living under the illusion that every generation is going to come to these with exactly the same understanding and memory of these events, wanting a particular understanding of an event to be as permanent as a government hopes it will be. And the artists, you know, just say that no human production has ever worked that way. While it took a while for this generation of artists to emerge, memorialization began almost immediately after the liberation of concentration camps. Sarah Farmer is a professor of European history at the University of California, Irvine, and has researched issues of commemoration and memorialization. 
She says that the need for justice informed the type of memorialization that was happening immediately after World War II. The initial impetus to keep these places right in, as the war was ending, or even before the war ended and people were looking to post-war justice, was the idea that if we keep these places, we have proof of what happened. Survivors wanted to make sure that the Nazis could be held accountable for their crimes. But beyond preserving the camps, they also built or petitioned to build memorial structures both within the camps themselves and to mark mass graves. There was an immediate need from survivors to show in the landscape that something terrible had happened there. But that desire wasn't always shared by the communities surrounding the camps, and the Cold War complicated things. West Germans were forced by the fact they were occupied by the Western allies to come to terms with Nazism and the Nazi past, whereas in the East, the East German regime and their story of anti-fascist resistance set up a place where East Germans could take a distance from the Nazi past. Farmer says that since the Nazi party targeted communists, and since the Soviet forces liberated the most concentration camps, the East German communist government positioned itself as both the victims and resistors of Nazi Germany, and therefore morally superior to capitalist West Germany. According to that myth, East Germany was free of bad guys because the high-level Nazis in this story had fled to the West at the end of the war. And so the sort of founding myth was that Nazism had been eradicated from East Germany. And, and then you had a site built later where the communist regime had created a kind of commemorative narrative about the anti-fascist resistance which had animated the prisoners of Buchenwald. And the whole story there was an elaboration of the political story of East Germans' anti-fascist resistance, which was the sort of moral and political foundation of the East German regime. In short, the memorials in East Germany asserted a false narrative about the East German government. In concentration camps like Buchenwald in former East Germany, the memorials from that time focused on communist resistance to Nazis, rather than the other victimized groups, like the Jewish, Santi, and Romani peoples. In the West, things were more complicated. There wasn't a huge desire to memorialize the Holocaust, and the memorials that did exist, they were designed as places for Germans to atone for their sins, rather than places for survivors or their communities to commemorate. In the Dachau concentration camp, the path to the crematorium became a Protestant church of atonement, where Germans could pray for forgiveness. Both countries developed a unique memorial culture with unique problems. And then... From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something as you can see... Germany was one country, and it had to figure out how to navigate its relationship with the Holocaust and move forward. Along with a series of reparations, a national Holocaust memorial was proposed. The memorial to victims of tyranny and war was placed in the Neue Wache in Berlin. So, 
I just exited um, Nuevaca, the memorial to war and tyranny. Um, someone left flowers at the base, the sculpture. The former guardhouse was cleared out and black tiles lined the floor. In the center, a sculpture of a woman holding her dead son by Kathy Kolovitz sat. It's very dark. Um, no one was in there except for a security guard and me. The memorial was and is an abject failure. Beyond using the Christian iconography of the Pieta for the central sculpture, it is also unclear who the memorial is for. Victims of tyranny and war also include Nazi soldiers who are killed in action. A German journalist led a campaign for a better memorial than the one in the Nuevaje, and the German government held a competition looking for designs in 1995 to poor results. It just came under kind of withering attack and criticism by, by many. So they avoided that first competition and then trying to figure out what to do and how to proceed. That's James E. Young again. They organized three huge symposia in 1998 and invited me to present and kind of give the, the very last keynote at one of these symposia. And I was really, really interested, you know, to look into the, the German struggle with how to commemorate the national crime committed in its name. This symposium really impacted Jung. Originally, like many other prominent Jewish scholars, he had opposed a new national memorial, but he began to think about it differently. He decided it was wrong that the only national memorial spaces in Germany to the Jewish victims of the Holocaust were concentration camps, especially since that would mean that the only national memorial space would be designed by the perpetrators of the crime. After the talk I gave, I mean, it was a German parliamentarian. He's pretty well known. I, I, can't, I can't remember his name right now. Peter Conradi. But very sympathetic to the process and one of the big backers of a Denkmal. But he asked me, do you think we'll ever be able to find a perfect design? And I said, not if you are aiming for perfection. And we have this saying in America that uh, perfect is the enemy of good. I think we will arrive at a good enough design if we just respect the process and even allow ourselves to fail and not put ourselves into this defensive crouch, so afraid to fail that we end up choosing something really bad. And I think that's what happened in the first competition. And that kind of, again, set him at ease and let him understand that, okay, take a deep breath and just keep moving forward. Don't panic and don't worry so much about the end result. Just respect a very long, arduous, difficult process. Young made an impression with his talk. And so when I got home from you know, giving this talk, I had a phone call from Peter Radunsky, who was then the speaker of the Berlin Senate, uh, asking if I would join a five-member Findungskommission, or you know, selection committee, for another memorial process. Said, well, you know, you know that I'm not sure you'll ever be able to do this. So if we can kind of build into the process the capacity for not ever arriving at a memorial or a final solution to Germany's Holocaust memorial problem, as I put it then, then I'm glad to come on board and you know, do the best we can. And maybe instead of asking artists and architects to solve the problem, maybe find a way to formalize and articulate the problem itself. You know, how to reunite Germany on the bedrock memory of its crimes. It's you're doing something that nobody else has really ever done before. I reminded him that 
At that point, there was no museum, no memorial, nothing marking uh, slavery in, in, in America, uh, not even a pebble of the National Mall commemorating the slave auctions took place there. The process for the second competition was long and arduous, but under the guidelines of creating a memorial that didn't assert a narrative but asked questions, they eventually settled on two designs and presented them to the public. The Peter Eisenman Design One. If you've never seen the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, it's the size of half a city block. These concrete blocks, known as stile, are laid out in a perfect grid. They start off shorter, but as you walk through, they get larger and larger until you're completely surrounded. It's pretty overwhelming, it's complex. You know, it's iconography, it's kind of suggestive of the cemetery, but, but not completely, and the, the faces of the stele are blank. It's disorienting and abstract, and by the time you get to the center of it, the sounds of the city have faded away until you find your way out of it again. The memorial has been incredibly influential, and though it is not perfect by any means, it is generally regarded as good. There are still facets and parts of the Holocaust that the memorial doesn't address. And in those gaps, other memorials have sprung up with their own controversies and complications. Even the signs that dotted my neighborhood, a memorial called Places of Remembrance, has various reactions. James E. Young loved it. What's so nice about that memorial is that it really returns memory to its everydayness and uh, reminds us that the, you know, the Jews, the Irish quarter, you know, before they were deported, actually had to live with these laws every day, you know, the Nuremberg laws, and that they kind of manifest themselves in daily occurrences, like the benches you can sit on or not sit on, the pools you can swim in and not swim in, and kind of returning that and kind of confronting people with it involuntarily. You know, they stumble on these sites, like the famous stumbling stones. And, and I, I like the way that these memorials kind of spring up on people and surprise them and catch them off guard a little bit. Whereas Sarah Farmer had this reaction. Who wants to have that put in your face all the time? And the other thing, too, is it just also kind of perpetuates and freezes Jews as, as victims and Jews as, you know, objects of uh, persecution. And it's, it's, it, it kind of... I don't, I, I bugs the hell out of me. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of horrible. Yeah, I mean, was your, was your family from, from Germany? Uh, yeah, they're from, my, my father grew up, was, my father's family was, were, they were from uh, Berlin, and actually my dad was, grew away, he, they lived in the, in the, um, people call it the Bayerische Viertel, and they were on yeah. Bamberger Straße, Bamberger Straße was the street that my dad lived in. Yeah, I, I lived right near the Bavarian. Did, is your is your family Jewish? Is, is that why they fled Germany? Or yeah, they left. I mean, they left. My dad's family was Jewish, and they left because of. Uh, but they they left because they were Jewish, and also, they could leave pretty easily because my grandfather, was Jewish, who had, and he had been born in America. Memorials in Germany exist in this limbo space where one scholar can love them and another despise them. They provoke endless conversations about who a memorial is for, what its function is, and if its form even makes sense. And as time goes on and the people visiting the memorials change, so do these conversations. People 
ask all the time, so what's Tech Mall going to mean in 50 years? And I just don't know. I'm pretty sure it will mean something different from what it means now to people. And to be another two or three generations removed from World War II and the Holocaust is just means that how people relate to it and how they understand what's going on and their experience within that memorial is going to be something else. There may be other terrible things that happen in the meantime. So it might be remembering the genocide of the Jews during World War II and other genocides for that matter. And it's already part of a memorial matrix, remembering all kinds of groups were murdered in mass during World War II. And I think that's how memorials live. And we have to allow them to live and breathe that way, or they become completely obsolete. There is, of course, the question of why. Why do we care if they become obsolete? Why do we want a memorial in the first place? What do they give us? This is a complicated question, and I don't have any easy answer. In German, the word for memorial is Denkmal, which translates roughly to think time. A memorial is a way to ensure a fixed time or space to think about something. When we talk about memorials or great tragedy, the phrase never forget is often thrown around. But in reality, it is not about the possibility of forgetting trauma, but the obligation to remember it that drives us. Spencer Bailey knows that better than most people. He's an accomplished journalist and podcast host, and he also has a deep connection with memorials. I was in a plane crash, survived, along with 111 others, and in the aftermath of that, there was a picture depicting me being carried, and that picture was then turned into a memorial five years after the crash, which is on the banks of the Missouri River in Sioux City, Iowa. So to have this sort of flimsy piece of media or paper become a cast in bronze fact in my life has been something that I've sort of been contending with and thinking about since I was a young boy. And now in adult life became a lot more interested in to the point that I wrote an entire book about it, contextualizing memorial culture globally in the contemporary sense of the last 40 years. In the process of writing his book, In Memory of Designing Contemporary Memorials, Bailey researched and visited memorials around the world and thought a lot about what memorials give us. I think memorials in many ways are tools for allowing us a moment of reflection, a way of slowing us down from the day-to-day motions and getting us to think about the past, but also understanding the past as a way of understanding the future. I think that memorials kind of become this tool for engagement in place, engagement in history, engagement in ourselves, understanding who we are, how we got here, where we're going, and ultimately kind of why that all matters. In his research, Bailey found that memorials give a space to sit with difficult emotions, like fear, hope, loss, strength, and guilt. As a human invention, memorials are by their nature imperfect. And there is no perfect design to represent or hold the tragedy and trauma of life. But that's not their job. It's ours. They are just tools to help us. And that's important because it gives us 
The ability to be fully present in a world that's constantly tugging at us to not be. Thank you to my editor, advisor, and greatest cheerleader, Melissa Cheshire, and to Katie Benson for designing my logo.